For those of you who don't know, I think everybody knows. Um, my name's Darren. Hi. Um, we're, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 46. Uh, if you remember, if you were here uh, last year, I think it was my first sermon I ever preached at Church Project over at the um, New Life. Uh, I preached from Psalm 46. This is really loud, guys, and it's ringing. I preached from Psalm 46, and um, and the, that that day I, I concentrated on the first part of uh, of the verse of the psalm. Today I'm going to concentrate on the second part, but I'm, I'm going to to stay in context. I'm going to bring you up to date for where we are and, and what's going on here in this psalm. But we're going to be reading from Psalm 46. I'm reading from the NIV. Um, God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. He will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And verse 10 is where we're going to concentrate today. Be still. Um, and in the Hebrew, this is, this is what is called a present future verb, which means it's continuous, present future continuous verb. So it's, it's saying, you could repeat it over and over, be still, be still, be still. Um, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So to set verse 10 up, I, I, I want to tell you what's going on here. The psalmist is speaking about, and he's using these metaphors and this, these illustrations, a time in your life when the earth gives way, when everything crumbles, when the foundations that you've based your life upon start shaking. When you're so overcome with grief, it's like floods of waves overcoming you. That's the picture he's setting up here. And then in the middle of this, he sets up that picture. And then he says that there is a city. Um, and he speaks about the throne of heaven. And there's a river that, that flows. And, and the picture he's painting here, anywhere in the Old Testament, whenever it talks about water or river, it's talking about the Spirit of God almost always. Um, unless it's actually talking about a river. Um, and uh, that happens too. Um, but then uh, what he's talking about is he's talking about in these times where your life is shattered, where you are just completely done, when, when you're wondering if God is there, when everything you believed in has been shaken, if you are a child of God, you have access to the living Spirit of God that flows straight from the throne of God into you. And then he goes on to talk about how God is going to protect us. 
Um, he's going to make war cease. He's, 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 he's going to protect us. But then at the end, it's sort of peculiar. Um, because at the end he says, Be still and know that I am God. So, the first part of this is true. It's true, you can take it to the bank, you can cash it. Um, but things can be true. And we cannot experience the truth of them. God can be present in the midst of your trials, your despair, your depression. But he can be present and you can miss it. Right? He can be there. He's there. But you can miss it or you don't feel it. Or you don't see it. Or you're not experiencing him. And those are those times you cry out, where are you God? Well, scripture... And uh, throughout the Old Testament, New Testament too, um, tells us this concept, gives us this concept of being still, um, of being quiet, of being silent. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, and to illustrate God's presence, I'm going to try something and I'm going to need your help. If you don't help me, it's not going to work, okay? Okay, we're going we're to do something. Um, you know, I've always, I've always struggled with these big theological concepts like the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity. I know all the answers. If you were to, I had to take a test on it in seminary, you know, if you ask me all the questions, I'll give you the right answers. I understand, I, I understand it intellectually in a way. I believe it, but, um, but I really don't understand it completely. It's beyond my human capacities. And we come up with all kinds of mnemonic devices and illustrations to try to explain the Trinity, don't we? You know, Augustine came up with the three rings and they intersect each other. And it's the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And, um, and, then, uh, and then, you know, I had a teacher that talked about the egg. You have the outer shell, the inner shell, and the yolk. Um, and, uh, and then you've, you've heard about water, you know, the mist, the ice, the, the water. But they all seem to break down somewhere, don't they? Um, but none of them encompass that we're talking about each one is holy God and holy separate. You know, none of them get that. And I, I've been praying about this and thinking about this lately, and I, um, I actually thought, you know, um, I think this can be understood, and I think God communicates to us on a spiritual heart level a lot through music. Um, am I the only person that thinks that music has a spiritual component to it? I mean, there's something really there about music. And, uh, and so I thought, um, how could we understand this? Maybe God isn't as limited as we are. And, and maybe he, uh, he could, we, this could be understood phonically or tonally or sonically, however you want to say it, with noise. Um, and, uh, and so what I want to do, in, in, in Christian tradition, uh, we have these long, these ver words with long vowels. You know, um, Amen, Hallelujah, Shalom. And the reason those are there is because we're, we're a singing faith. Judaism was a singing faith. Christianity's always been a singing faith. Um, so what I want to do is I want to divide us into three groups. Okay? So um, this works really well with big crowds, so we shouldn't have any problems. Um, and so... Uh, so uh, 
Kristen and um, straight back from there, you guys. Um, Jared and Shannon and uh, the two guys in the back, Danny and, and the guys in the back, and you. Oh, y'all are y'all are the second group, and then y'all are the third group. Okay. So we're gonna start with this group. Give me a note. Uh, and we're, just, we're just gonna sing Amen. Give it to me again. No, you got it. You got. Okay, you gotta sing on, on in key. Okay. Uh, I mean, amen, amen, can't hear y'all, sing out, amen, you got to sing too, okay, all right, now third, okay, third. silent for a few minutes afterwards, so just follow me. come this morning, you would, you would inhabit this space that your spirit would blow through here like a mighty rushing wind, blowing out all the garbage and sin and muck and mire in our lives, blowing in the freshness of your life, of your power, of your goodness, your grace. I pray that your spirit will illuminate our understanding that we just wouldn't look at these words as intellectual, academic things to try to figure out. But we would look at them as the breath of God. The heartbeat of your spirit. And we would be transformed by them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I think that that illustrates the Trinity is because you have, what you have is you have three notes, but each note is fully supporting the other, isn't it? Each note is pointing to the other and highlighting the other and making the other beautiful when you sing harmony. But at the same time, each note is completely independent, isn't it? It doesn't need the other, but it makes the other better. And it, and it, it encompasses it. And what I really think it, it, it highlights as well is the ever-existing presence of God. God is as close as that sound. And when we were singing, you couldn't escape that and be in this room, could you? 
You couldn't escape. It, it totally encompassed you. It totally surrounded you. It was everywhere. Um, three in one, totally present, unescapable. And, um, and that's, that's who God is. God is as close to you right now as that sound was. That's how near to God it is to you right now. Um, that's the radical nearness of God and the radical availability of God. Do we believe that? Do we live that? Not just in church, but in our car, in our workplace. When the mountains are falling into the sea and the oceans are roaring. Do we believe that? Um, and if he is here in this moment, in this very moment, you are being loved by a God that is as near to you as that sound was. You're being loved by a God that is present, that is here, that is with you. And that is how we have to learn to live our lives. That is how we need to learn to exist. In the darkest moments, the Trinity, the triad, beholds us and loves us. Zephaniah 3.17 says that, um, I can't remember how they translate it. I think it's he, he rejoices over you with singing. When he looks at you, he sees delight. How many of us really believe that? How many of us really believe that when our Heavenly Father is present right now, we're being loved by Him at this very moment, and when He looks at you, Allie, He is delighted. He's delighted. The Hebrew in that verse, 7, 9, 3, 17, says that it, it, it has, um, it says actually the, the concept is he's, he spins around in reckless abandon when he looks upon you. He's so thrilled that he starts dancing when he looks at you. That's wild, isn't it? We could camp out there all day. Um, how many guys? How many of you guys have read Screw Tape Letters? Anybody read Screw Tape Letters? I knew you would have read it. <laughs> I would have bet money on it. Uh, you read? You read it? Screw Tape Letters. Um, Screw Tape Letters is a is a a, a, um, a book by C.S. Lewis. He wrote it in 1942, and it's it's the story of a senior devil named Screw Tape training a junior devil named Wormwood. And Wormwood is assigned a person that is seeking God that's called the patient. And Wormwood's job and what Screwtape is trying to train him in is how to interfere and keep the patient away from God. And the one thing, the most important thing that Screwtape tells Wormwood is there's a place in the novel where Screwtape tells Wormwood there is nothing that Satan hates more than silence. His plan is to fill this planet with so much noise that it will drown out the presence and the melodies of heaven. Lewis wrote that in 1942. 
And today, I believe he was prophetic. We live in a world that is, has gone psychotic with noise and distraction. It is everywhere. It is all-consuming. It is never-ending. And Satan is trying to destroy human beings by eradicating silence in our world. I believe that. Um, we live in a world of seismic noise. And the reason is because the human soul flourishes in the ecosystem of silence. I'm going to say that again if you want to write it down or tuck it away in your head. The human soul flourishes in the ecosystem of silence. And I'm going to show you why I say that in a moment. But it's true. Take it to the bank. Um, it's, like, it's like mold or mildew. And I know we don't have a lot of that here. When we, when we bought our house, we were like looking in the basement. And I asked the real estate agent, I said, you know, what? I'm from the east. You know, I've lived in... Uh, Rome where we have three rivers and Baltimore where we have a bay and St. Louis where we have the Mississippi so I'm used to humidity and I said well how much of a mold problem do you have and she looked at me and she said this is Colorado we don't have a mold problem um, and uh, but mold grows in the ecosystem of dark and wet doesn't it you give me a dark wet place and I'll show you mold it's just what is. It's the same way with silence and the health of the human soul. Um, that's why Satan would like to abolish silence in our life. Um, the Latin word, the Latin root for, a sil uh, for a noise is nausea. It makes you sick. Um, our souls are becoming sick with noise. I, be, I believe on many, many levels. Um, but why do I say that silence is the ecosystem of um, a healthy soul? Well, first of all, it's throughout Scripture. You look at Scripture and, and the giants of Scripture, when they need to hear from God most, when they need what they develop the habit in their life of continually withdrawing away to just be with God. Moses on the mountain, um, Elijah in the cave, uh, Jesus repeatedly through the Gospels, it tells us that he withdrew to be with himself, to be with God. Um, Psalm uh, 62 says, uh, my soul waits in silence. Um, that's another thing that, that silence does is it, it builds patience within us. Um, my soul waits in silence. It's an act of faith. In Psalm 65, it says, Silence is praise to you, O God. Wow. It, who in our culture would ever just think of that? Silence is praise? How many worship services have you been in where silence was considered praise? Um, but Scripture says it. Silence is praise. Um, about uh, in 1980, has anybody heard of Jack Perkins? 
Jack Perkins. He was a real famous news guy with um, with NBC. He was one of their anchors and worked with David Brinkley and and um, and back in the 70s, real big at the height of his career. Um, in fact, the, in 1980, he won a grant, uh, an Emmy. Um, he worked with everybody, all the bigwigs. And then he announced the night that he won his Emmy that his wife and he were leaving Los Angeles, never to return, and they had bought a house on an island in Maine with no electricity. You had to get on a boat to get there. And they were going to live the rest of their lives out in silence. And people thought he had lost his mind. So he went out to Maine. And you know what he found? He's, he's written it in a, a book called Finding God at Moose, Moose Lake or Moosehead Lake. You know what he found in the silence? The salvation of God. He discovered Jesus in the silence. There weren't any evangelists. There wasn't a television. There weren't any preachers. There was just this and quiet. And he found God. Um, how many of you guys know um, Spencer, uh, you know, up in Gunnison? Any, Spencer Nichols. Anybody, any of y'all know Spencer? You're shaking your head yes, yes. Um, Spencer has a similar testimony. Spencer was a... Uh, Graduated from high school and he was going to go live out in the wild of Alaska. And uh, you know in Alaska they have this little tip, you know, the little tip of islands that go down like that. He lived on the farthest island. Nothing there. He said that he took two things with him other than his clothes and food. Um, enough liquor to get him through a year and his mama handed him a Bible when he left. He said he drank up all the liquor after six months and said then he started reading his Bible in the middle of nowhere and he found Jesus um, about five years ago I was pastoring and things weren't going quite well oh, well things were going very well in one aspect we were in revival people were getting saved people, we were sending missionaries worship was breaking out but then in another way, the old guard didn't like that. And so there was a lot of adversity. Really, really evil, cruel adversity. I'm attacking my family, my wife, um, going into our past, trying to find things about us, and, uh, and just, just all kinds of stuff. Um, and I, um, that was the first time that I decided, I've got to get away, I just need to be quiet. So I, I found a cabin in Virginia with no internet, no telephone, no uh, TV, no radio. You couldn't pick up anything. And I went there for a week. And I think it saved my life. Because God showed up. And he told me he wasn't through with me at that church. And he told me to stay strong. In the next three years, I went on that silent retreat every year. And I think the only reason I was able to minister in that place and the calling that God had placed me in was because of what I received in those moments of silence with God. So let me tell you what you'll experience what happens when, when you try this. The first thing that happens, the first thing that happens is you sense that someone or something 
is beckoning you, is calling you to something better. You have nostalgia and a pining for a better place, for a heaven, for an Eden. Um, something deep within our soul begins to speak to us about how things are supposed to be. Does that make sense? How things are supposed to be. And then the second thing you, 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 you realize is you realize you're not alone. You realize that God is there. And you suddenly realize, maybe like you never had before, the largeness of God. The majesty of God. The full holiness of God. Um, and it's a little scary. About this time, you're going to want to go to the convenience store and get something to drink or something just so you can turn the radio on in your car or just so you can talk to somebody behind the register. It gets a little scary because you suddenly realize that God is amazing and loving and gracious and wonderful, but he's also like the Grand Canyon. He's big, expansive, beautiful, but a little scary. Or like the ocean. Or like Aslan. You know, he's good, but he's what? He's good, but he's wild. Yeah, he's, he's scary. He's dangerous. I think that it's dangerous. Um, the third thing is uh, you're going you're gonna to want to run. I already said that. But you're going to realize that God is inescapable. Um, God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Um, and he always has been. And you're going to want to run. And a lot of people do at this point. A lot of people leave. A lot of people stop. Um, someone else is there and they see your true you. This is the scariest part of all. Not the you that everybody here knows. Not the you that you have put on for everybody, even your spouse. But the deepest, darkest, truest parts of you that nobody else knows. You're going to come face to face with that. And you're going to realize that God knows it and knows you. Um... And he's going to remind you of your true story. Not the story of all the little pat Sunday school answers. Not the story of, I, I accepted Jesus when I was la la la. Um, but the story of the struggle. The story of the doubts. The story of the back and forth. The story of the backsliding. The story of the secret doubts that only you know about. And the story of how he has been merciful and gracious and present through it all. And he still is. You're going to see the depth of your depravity. You're going to become face to face with your true self. But then you're going to come face to face with a God who looks upon you and sees nothing but what is delightful. Because you've been covered by the blood of his son.
You will realize God has always been there, but the noise and the distractions of the world have robbed you of your awareness of him. God is always present, but we're most often, if not quite often, unaware of it. Um, because of the constant distractions. You know, we have become a culture of experienced junkies. And, and each generation has gotten more and more so. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with technology. A lot of it has to do with wealth, of being in a wealthy country. A lot of it has to do with, communi- uh, with transportation availability and the ease of transportation. But we have become a, a culture of experienced junkies. We've got to be doing something. Um, and God says no it's very counterintuitive for an American but God says be still be silent don't do anything and I'll love you there you don't have to perform you don't have to work you don't have to prove anything to me it's already been done on the cross It's time for you to rest. You know, we we have this concept of grace. And I'm not saying that God doesn't call us to all types of ministry. I'm saying he also calls us to rest. He also calls us to Sabbath. Right? And we have completely lost the concept of Sabbath. And by Sabbath, I don't mean Sunday. I mean a day of rest, a time of rest. You know, in the Bible, they have a cycle I mean, the Old Testament, they have a cycle. They have um, the day of rest every seven days. Every seven years, you have um, the year of Jubilee where you rest and you let the field sit and you forgive people's debt so they don't have to worry about it. Um, it's, it, it, it's very, very biblical. Um, the noise and distraction we live in is psychotic and has robbed you of your destiny, which is to know the awareness of God, to experience Him, and to love Him forever. That's your destiny. Jesus did not die for you to have fire insurance. You have fire insurance, and that's a wonderful part, right? I mean, I, would, I wouldn't want to not have it. But Jesus died so you can know God. Jesus died so you can have a relationship with God. Jesus died so Eden could be restored. And the innocence and the trust and the intimacy of his relationship with Adam and Eve could be experienced in our lives. Um, Here's the gospel. You are loved. That's it. Everything else, all the doctrine, all the theology, all the concepts, all the, all, the, all the work, all the doing, all the singing, all the worshiping, everything flows from that reality. It starts with the acceptance and the reality and the awareness that you are unconditionally, completely, eternally, intimately loved by the creator God of the universe and he swirls around with reckless abandon in your place everything else flows from that you don't um, Jeremy doesn't, doesn't give his gifts 
because he wants to make God happy. He gives his gifts because God has made him happy. He gives his gifts because he is so overcome with the love of God that he can do no other. Um, Jared isn't treasurer and works with, works with the finances of the church because if he does enough, he'll get enough crowns when he gets to heaven. And he'll have a bigger mansion than you. And I mean, no, that's not why he does it. He does it because he knows he is completely unacceptable before God. He is completely unlovable before God. But God has chosen to love him anyway, has entered into his life, has transformed him, has changed him, and he can do no other but give the God given gifts he's been bestowed upon back to God that's why um, when you get that and, and you know I, I tell people I don't think people that do, I, people that do not get the concept of grace cannot be silent before God why because they got to be doing something for him to prove themselves to be silent, you have to recognize there's nothing I could do to prove myself. There's nothing I could do to, to, to make myself better apart from the blood of God. And so you're saying, okay, you're saying that you, grace lets you do whatever you want. You get saved and you can do whatever you want. You can be lazy. And not No, I'm saying when you really get the gospel... When you've really been transformed by the Holy Spirit, something is going to be moved within you and you're going to be like Mary at the feet of Jesus and you can do no other but break the expensive ointment over his feet. You're going to be thinking, how can I show him I love him? How can I show him I love him? And one of the most intimate, truest, spiritually healthiest ways we can show him we love him is to be silent and still before him. To put it all aside, the work, the church, the kids, and to sit in the presence of God. Um, some people will say, well, isn't this the touchy-feely, cuddly little Jesus, the feel-good Jesus, Darren? Aren't you talking about the, the feel-good Jesus? Well... I'm 47 years old and I've lived a lot of life in those 47 years. I'm not stupid. Life is hard. Things happen. God is the Grand Canyon, great and mighty. But he's our father. And when those things happen, he's present. I want to tell you what happens. A few years ago, we have a son with severe autism, for those of you who didn't know. And if we have his teeth cleaned, we have to um, pay for the dentist to close his office. Last time it was like $2,000 just for him to close his office. We have to pay for the hospital to open up an emergency room or an operating room. We have to have him put to sleep, and then the dentist cleans all his teeth and does everything. Um, the last time this happened, we're going in and, I'm, and, and I, I bring Micah to the hospital and they start taking him back and I say, I need to go back with him. We, we're professionals. We've got this under control, uh, Dad. I said, no, really, he's going to go berserk. He's going to break the needle off and it's going to get lost in his skin. Um, you need to let me go with him. Um, we know what we're doing. Blah, blah, blah. Finally, I talked to him into I could just go in the room, but I couldn't do anything. So I'm standing over the side. They try to give him a shot. He goes berserk, breaks the needle off. They're all like, 
going crazy trying to grab the needle before, before it does him. Finally, the doctor turns around and says, Dad, can you help us? And I pull it out. And then I hold Micah while they put him to sleep. And he looks at me with sheer terror in his eyes. And Micah can't speak, but his eyes are screaming at, out, Dad, help me. Help. But I held him until they finished their job because I loved my son beyond what he was feeling or experiencing at that moment. I loved him for the good that it was going to bring him in the long run, for who it was going to make him. And that's the love of God. He loves you for who he is creating you to be, who he's making you. Now I want to tell you, at first particularly, but sometimes always, um, silence is difficult. I don't want to paint any pretty picture. You're going to go and you're immediately going to feel the little tingles of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. You may go and not feel anything for a while. You may be bored stiff. Um, it's hard work. Um, it takes dedication. It takes commitment, particularly in our culture because it's so counterintuitive to us. Um, but you will experience grace and nothingness. Uh, Evelyn Underhill said that uh, in, the pri- in the American church, our primary verb is um, to want to do, to have. Those are the three primary verbs we think. To want to do, to have. You know, I love Jesus. I want a good life. Um, if I do, I'll have a good life and he'll bless me and, um, and I'll get the things that I need. And she said, in reality, the primary verb of the gospel is to be. And most of us don't know how to just be. In silence, we learn how. We have the space of the beholding. Now, why is this at the end of 46? Why is this at the end of this psalm where it's talking about God being present in the midst of trials? Because it is telling you, remember the verb is, um, is, uh, is um, present future tense. What it is telling you, and, and past, it's, it's continuous. Um, it's telling you that when you spend time in the presence of God and you know God in stillness and in silence, not only will it be true that he's present... But it'll be much more likely that you will experience his presence. And you will have a peace and a calm and a joy, even in the roughest times. But you have to develop it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for allowing me to stand before my friends and... um, And just open up your word together and to see what you have for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.